0: a story this week about Benjamin Kissoni. He gets up at 3 a.m. every morning to pray and read scripture. <laughs> Gosh, that reminded me of myself. Up at 3 a.m. every morning to read scripture and to pray. Probably thinking of yourself, aren't you? <clears throat> at 4.30, he begins his eight-hour shift making biscuits at a local restaurant in Jonesboro, Tennessee. However, back in 2009, Benjamin was pastoring a church and publishing a Christian magazine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But after several men came to his house trying to kill him, he had to flee. And eventually he came to the U.S. He's trying to establish a new life here, but as recently as May of this past year, an immigration judge denied him asylum, claiming that he has inadequate grounds for such. So Benjamin is still waiting. He says this. He says, you know, I used to think that you can go through suffering and then you reach victory on the other side. But I've learned that when you are in the midst of suffering and have hope in God, that is victory. When you're in the midst of suffering and you have hope in God. Since Resurrection Sunday, we've been talking together about Hope in God, that that outrageous event that we celebrated together on resurrection morning, that that Jesus came out of that tomb and because he came out of that tomb, belief in him and in his doing that is ultimately the difference between life and death. God's people have this outrageous belief that the resurrection of Jesus is makes a difference in their lives. And according to where we have been in Ephesians 1 for the last couple of Sundays, it is the difference between living in a vital way in this fallen and broken world in which we find ourselves versus just biding our time until heaven, until we're released from this place. We are are called, are we not? We're called to live for Christ, and we are called to live like Christ in this broken world, and to call attention by the way that we live to the reality of Jesus, to the reality that he rose from the dead, to the reality that he conquered human bondage to sin and eternal death in his resurrection for those who believe it. That's outrageous. That is outrageous because we have nothing to do with that. God has hatched the plan and God has executed the plan and the plan is complete. What is left for us is to believe and to live out our belief as a result of what he has done for us. That would be kind of a summary of where we have been in this first half of the first chapter of of Ephesians, you remember these words where Paul says, you are also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now remember, gospel means good news. And in order for it to be good, that means that there was bad news, okay? So we were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. He says this, having believed you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, that was the spirit that Jesus promised to his followers, John 13. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now that sounds pretty good to me until we come to those words, until the redemption I don't know about you, but what I hear there is that there's an implication that that it that it hasn't happened yet. Until the redemption, there is there is this, this waiting. Waiting until the redemption. God's people waiting for Christ to return, to take them to their eternal reward. He rose from the dead, he is alive and well, and he is reigning victorious, and yet he is waiting to come and to complete the redemption and to take his people. So here we are in this period of waiting. And the question is, is that it's all about hope. What do we do in the meantime while we wait? Well, we could play a little golf could ride our bikes. We could do a little fishing. We could make some money. We could save some money. We could live a comfortable life. We could stay out of trouble, right? We could hope for the best. You know, I know of some people who went to Senegal recently. They shall remain nameless And as a result of that mission trip, they came back believing that God wants them to return and live in Senegal for two three years, maybe more. That's crazy. That's not normal Christian living. Can you imagine? I mean, I've been there. Can you imagine God calling someone to live in a place like that? That's just crazy. And yet, the Apostle Paul would say, Yes, yes. I can imagine that happening because Paul says, I have been asking and asking and asking the Heavenly Father to give you, God's people, Ephesian believers and Applewood believers, I've been asking Him to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Because Paul knew that the result of knowing God better would mean more amazement at his love. More amazement at his grace that has touched our lives and that knowing that, the response would well up in those who are his followers that would lead to a more vital, Christ-centered, resurrection-powered life. Paul is not interested at all In a ho hum Christian life. For him, it doesn't exist. Paul was a transformed man. You know the story. Knocked to his face on the road to Damascus by the living, conquering Christ. And Paul was a changed man. Paul was a changed man as the Spirit of the living God took a hold of his life and turned him in a different direction. Paul knows nothing of ho-hum Christianity. Paul knows nothing of just biding our time until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Paul says, we have got work to do. And you Ephesian believers, and you Applewood Community Church believers, you've got work to do. And so I'm praying... Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. The hope to which he has called you. I love the way N.T. Wright translates that. He says, that you could have the eyes of your inmost self open to God's light and then you will know exactly what the hope is that goes with God's In other words, when the Spirit turns on the light in our lives so that we see God's love and we see His grace for what it really is undeserved and so amazing, we will live with passion. We will live with intentionality for Jesus until He returns for us or until we die. And it won't make any difference. It really doesn't matter because if the Spirit of God has answered our prayer, then our eyes have been opened to the truth of the greatness of the hope to which He has called us. So then we become a people who think about going to Senegal and living there for two or three years. We become a people who who do things that Jesus calls us to do that, that are self-sacrificing, the serving of others, giving our lives to to those that, that nobody else really cares about, to spending instead of saving, to giving instead of keeping. We become people who live that way because of the hope to which we have been called. Life in God changes who we are. That's why Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened so that we can know the hope to which God has called us. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you ever just find yourself wanting to go out in a blaze of glory? You don't have to answer that. Man, Going out in a blaze of glory, that's that's what Paul's talking about. To live as Christ and to die as gain. So, let me ask you, are you praying that for yourself? I'm praying that for you. I'm praying that for me, too. And I, and I hope that we'll begin to pray that for one another. If God answers those prayers, and I think that that's probably a prayer that he delights to answer, then we need to buckle our seatbelts. Because life is going to get exciting in terms of what he calls us to and what he is doing in us and through us. I, I sometimes I just my heart just longs for more of what I see in in the book of Acts, where people are following passionately after Jesus. And uh, you know, the first, first two or three centuries, well, first two for sure, in the life of the church. The Roman Empire was really baffled by these people called Christians. They just couldn't figure them out. They didn't really know what to do with them. They they were, for the most part, they were good folks. Yeah, they were good neighbors. They cared about others. They were were known for their their good deeds and their care for the sick and, and the poor. The problem was, they weren't loyal to the Roman Empire. In the midst of this life that they lived, that people looked at and and sort of wondered and and others admired and, and were the beneficiaries of in terms of their kindness and their compassion, in the midst of that, the Christians were also very intentional and verbal about their loyalty to another kingdom. Loyal to another king. And his name wasn't Caesar. His name was Jesus. And so Rome did the only thing that they could think of they they started to exterminate them. To be a follower of Jesus was, in those early centuries, a death sentence. people knew about hope and lived out their hope, it was those early Christians. They knew that to be a follower of Jesus could very well mean that life would end any day, at any moment, for them, for their friends who were followers, for their family who were followers. But they didn't care they followed hard after Jesus and as the writer of the book of Hebrews exhorts believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire they spurred one another on to love and good deeds and they encouraged one another even more so because they knew that the day was coming Christians lived not perfectly they lived with a passion. They lived with a zeal. They lived with a focus on Jesus that we just don't often see in our culture because we are not pressed. Because we are not persecuted. Because we don't face the threat of death every day because we take the name of Jesus. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians and tells them that he is praying that they will know the hope to which they have been called, he is referring to life in Christ both for eternity and for this world in which they and we live. Hope that comes into their lives Hope that comes into our lives and consumes us with a passion to follow Jesus no matter what. Because life is short. And we have the great hope for a new life, promise of being with God for eternity. Living in the relationship of love and intimacy for which we were created. And that's, I think, what, what drove the early church. It was the hope of a new life with God that was made possible through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The truth of what God had done for them in Christ is what gave them great hope. You remember the story I've told you in the past about Sharice's conversation with Jordan when he was little, the glories of heaven, wouldn't you like to go there? And he said, no, I think I'd really rather go to McDonald's. That's where the American church is at, my friends. Forgive me if this is harsh. We'd rather go to McDonald's because we are just not all that taken with the love and the grace of God that has given us hope for all eternity. Forgive me if I seem a little fired up, but my goodness, I live a pathetic life. And I would go out on a limb and say, for the most part, you all do too. We need passion for Jesus. We need to understand and to be reminded of the hope that God has given us in Christ Jesus. What were our choices apart from Christ? Slim and none. And McDonald's. We could go to McDonald's. Let me ask you. I've been thinking about this for myself all week long. Do people see you living with hope? I'm not talking about hope in the bank. I'm not talking about hope in politics or the economy. Do people see you living with the hope? The hope that drove the early church? The hope for which Christians willingly laid down their lives? Do they see you living with the hope that is life in Christ? Amazing, undeserved gift that has come from God through His Son. Do they see hope Flowing from you? Do they see hope flowing from me because we know and are convinced of the truth of what God has done for us? Do they see and experience in your life what the Romans saw in the early followers of Jesus? That your heart belongs to another place, that your loyalty belongs to another king. Or do people see us as pretty much part and parcel of this society in which we live? And when it comes right down to it, we'd probably just rather go to McDonald's. Bide our time and wait. So let's stand and read our text for this morning. It's from Romans, Romans chapter 5. I want us to be reminded of the truth of what God has done. These will be familiar words, I'm sure. For many of us. <clears throat> but what Paul has to say here, I think, is so important as we link it to the prayers and the promises that, that what the, of, of what he wrote to the Ephesians. So let's read these verses together. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise be to God, my brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Did you hear Paul's use of that word hope? Three times in four verses that we read together, Paul is saying that because of what Christ has done for us, we have peace with God and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, we have said before in the past that that the glory of God, we know this, has to do with his character, has to do with the perfection of his nature. And we have peace with God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And as a result, we have hope in that because of who God is. That's what Paul means when he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What God has done for us through his Son is, well, it's, it's completed. It's a done deal. It's it's never going to change. Who we are as a result of what God has done for us in Christ will never change because it is grounded in the character and the nature of God. Does that make sense? That's how we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because in the character of God, in the goodness of God, in the unchanging beauty and wonder and grace of God, hope exists because God doesn't change. It's who He is. Trust me, this is way, way better than McDonald's, even if you do like their fries. Okay? When you came in today, there are some sheets on the chairs, and, uh, and I owe a thank you to one of Sharice's colleagues at, at Faith Christian High School who spent some time studying through the the, uh, the letters and the epistles in the New Testament and just identified statement after statement after statement about who we are in Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, you ought to take those pages and, and if there are some left around and you can grab some extras or if there aren't enough and everybody takes them, uh, let me know. I'll make some more. I just didn't want to waste a whole bunch of pages this morning. But there are several, and I would take those. And if you've never done a study on who you are in Christ, you need to do this. Because if you don't, then you will continue to be a person who doesn't live with the hope of who you are in Christ. We can't live with that hope in terms of the witness that it is to those around us if we don't really understand who we are as a result of what Christ has done. Paul says, so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then we read this. Heather, can we put three through five back up? Not only so, Paul says, but we also glory in our sufferings. We also rejoice in our sufferings. What's the matter with this man? Who rejoices in their sufferings? Paul says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Another translation, that would be hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I want you to turn to a neighbor real quickly and ask him this question. What does hope have to do with suffering? How are the two related? How are hope and suffering related? See what you think. Okay, we ready? What profound theological truths have you heard from your neighbor? What do they have to do with each other? I mean, Paul obviously ties them right together. What do you think? Okay? Okay. So we have hope carrying us along, yeah, you know. I'm afraid you're right. And I really wish it wasn't that way. Suffering is the root of hope. Why what else? What else did you hear? No credit to the neighbor. <laughs> Did you hear it? Hope, you know, suffering causes everything to get stripped away that we may have otherwise put our hope in. And uh, we are left then with either hope or despair. And it's the Spirit of God who has been poured into our hearts that brings to life that hope that we have in who God is in the midst of suffering. That's really key. Did I mention those sheets that I put on the chairs earlier? You need to know who you are in Christ. Because if you don't, then you will be tempted to despair. Because we live, quite frankly, I mean, since I've already gone down a bad path this morning and been Mr. Nasty, I'm just going to say it. We live in a culture where the evangelical church teaches baloney. We teach fluff. We teach come to Jesus and all your problems will be over. Are you kidding Ask the disciples what they think of that theology. You know, we live in we live in a in a place where where God will prosper and bless your life. And we're thinking economically and and those kinds of tangible sorts of ways. Come on. There is no place and and I mean no place that scripture teaches that God is going to prosper and bless us in such a way that we avoid all suffering. What it clearly teaches us is that suffering is a part of life in a fallen world and we don't get an exempt ticket from it. We find ourselves living in the midst of it. But we're living in the midst of it as people who have been given this glorious hope, guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who reminds us of who we are in Christ, so that out of our lives, in the midst of the crap that we live in, comes this witness for the greatness and the glory of who God is. There is never a ticket in Scripture that says, Oh, poor me, I'll take that one. It just doesn't exist. And I realize when I say this with fear and trembling that I haven't begun to suffer to the extent that some of you have suffered in your lives. I just know that. But all I can say to you, rather than offer the fluff that is unbiblical, rather than offer advice that is grounded in the best of the human spirit, what I can say to you is what Scripture says and reminds us of again and again and again that in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hard stuff, you have hope, not because of the circumstances, but because of who you are in Christ Jesus. You are a child of the King. Paul's language in Romans 7, Romans 8, that's on the... Did I mention those sheets that I passed around earlier? You'll you'll find a lot of these references there. Read those sheets, my friends. Now, all of that to say this. What in the world does this have to do with what Paul is praying for in terms of the Ephesians? He has prayed two things. We've seen one, that they will know the hope to which, he have, which they have been called. It's hope for who we are because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We are the children of the king. We are people who have hope for all of eternity that ought to bear upon this life in which we live in the midst of painful, hard circumstances. Paul wants believers to know the hope to which they've been called. Live out that hope. And then he says, I want you to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, that line really creates confusion for commentators because the structure of the language is such that The inheritance really belongs to God. It really belongs. He's not talking about inheritance that belongs to saints here. They, They will know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, Paul is saying that this glorious, vast group of people that are known as the saints throughout all of eternity are God's inheritance in this whole process, to which I think he got a raw deal. But that's what Paul means. They are, we are, God's inheritance. We are his property. We are what are coming to him as a result of what he has done for us in Christ. And when we check out of this life, my brothers and sisters, we become the inheritance of God in his presence. Yeah! Yeah! are you going to show up there? Are you going to show up with a smile on your face? Are you going to show up pouting about the fact that this life was hard? You see how hope drives that whole idea of we are the inheritance of God and someday we will be secure and finally in his presence. But here's the word that jumped out at me and we have got to go. Real quickly. We'll do some more with this next week because it is so rich saints. Did you read that word? The inheritance of the saints. Now, Lee and I are famous for self-deprecation because we're both wretched creatures. He is more wretched than I am. But Lee, I thought of you this week. <laughs> but I thought of you with the word saint. My brother, you're a saint. As wretched a man as you are. You are a saint because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. That is true for all of us. I don't think of myself often enough as a saint. Signed, sealed, delivered, done, complete. Because of what Christ has done for me. Now here's where I think it becomes very significant for our life together. If that's true for me as a follower of Jesus, that's true for you as a follower of Jesus, and you and you and you, and all of us who have committed our lives to following Jesus. We are saints together, and a part of I think, creating a beautiful inheritance, if I can use it in that way, not that we make ourselves any more beautiful than what Christ has already made us, but in terms of the living out of this life together, we recognize that the suffering that I live with in this life doesn't just come to me alone, but all who bear the name of Christ suffer together. And therefore, we have opportunity To live our lives together in the suffering and to encourage one another. And that, I think, brings great delight to the Father's heart because you know what we're encouraging each other with? Did I mention the sheets that I left on the chairs this morning? We're encouraging one another with the truths of what Scripture says. It doesn't really matter what I think about your suffering, it doesn't really matter what you think about my suffering. What matters is what God says about our suffering and His faithfulness and His presence and who He is to us in the midst of that suffering. We have got to become a people who are versed in the truth of Scripture so that we're not offering each other baloney in our conversations and in our encouragement. We can say things like, holy cow, that must be hard. That must hurt so bad. Wow, I am so thankful for God's grace and his presence and his love and his faithfulness to you in your life. We can say things like, oh, don't worry, it's going to get better. Hang in there. Really? It might not. For some of you, it's never gotten better after years and years and years of suffering. But I can say to you with certainty, God, who does not change, it is... The hope of who He is that we rejoice in and that we cling to and that we are a part of a group of people. Man, go home and read You know Hebrews chapter 11. Talk about a hall of faith or a hall of fame. You know, folks who believed in God and as a result, they were rewarded with being cut in half. It was a glorious thing. But their hope, their hope, was in the one who had called them in Christ Jesus. And implied in that chapter and all through Scripture and I hope present in our life together is the reality that we're in this together, my friends. You know, and as Americans, because we're so individual, you know, we tend to sort of just, oh man, I gotta just buck up. I gotta bear up under this. I gotta gotta deal with it. I wonder how many times we have deprived ourselves of blessing and strength and even the presence of God through the Spirit's work in a brother or a sister to minister to us when we find ourselves in a hard place. This is the last time you picked up a phone and said, Oh, man, I am just in the trenches. Think we could talk? I just need for you to remind me of who I am in Jesus. I need you to remind me of the truth of what Scripture says. You know, don't tell me about what Dr. Phil says. Tell me what Jesus says. Tell me what the Word says. That's a part of the beauty of the inheritance of the saints that belongs to God. <sighs> Praise team, come on up. We've got to close. More next week on this. But my friends, let me just read this to you real quickly as they come. Um, I came across this this week. Catherine Green McCrate. Uh, she's an author and I've not read, she wrote um, a book called Darkness is My Only Companion. And it's, it's her personal story, a Christian response to, to mental illness. And she describes her tortured journey, as she calls it, through 10 years of extreme depression and a bipolar disorder. And concerning the importance of Christian fellowship, the gathering of the saints, my friends, she writes about this while she's in a recovery. She said, this is why it's so important to worship in community, to ask your brothers and your sisters to pray for you. Sometimes you literally cannot make it on your own and you need to borrow from the faith of those around you. I love that. Sometimes I cannot even recite the creed, she says, unless I'm doing it in the context of worship along with all the body of Christ. When reciting the creed, I borrow from the recitation of others. And then she closes with this. Companionship in the Lord Jesus is powerful. And I would say companionship in the Lord Jesus is absolutely necessary to live a life of hope. Amen.